All right, let's get going uh, this morning. This will be our last time to do the Zoom thing. Be back together again next weekend. I actually won't be there. I'll be at Garland. Um, but uh, we'll be back outside. We are going to continue with the time change at 11. I know many of you like nine. I think partly that's because a lot of our college students aren't here. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to continue on with 11 because it's a little bit easier with the weather so that we can stay outside. Um, and then we can sort of take a survey or something next semester to figure out if everybody wants to unanimously more or less move to nine o'clock uh, once we can start meeting inside and stuff or somewhere in between those two, maybe 10, some kind of happy medium. Uh, so yeah, so next week we'll be back outside, uh, weather permitting, uh, any days that the weather doesn't permit, we'll just go inside. Uh, so be prepared for that. Those of you who uh, might need to go home, don't feel comfortable inside, that's fine. Just uh, we'll just kind of take it uh, day by day, week by week rather. And if we need to do a Zoom thing in addition to uh, our meeting, that's great. We'll make that happen, make it work. So we've got a couple announcements this morning. I think Opal's got our first announcement. So Opal, go ahead. Good morning. Um, at DNC, we have a particular passion for ministering to college students and helping them transition out of college and into the working world. So we're starting a new DNC focused mentorship program. We announced it last week um, at church. We're going to have a sign-up sheet. Well, we do. It is there um, on last week's newsletter, and it's also posted on the Facebook page. You have to scroll down a little bit to see it, but it is on there, promise. Um, also, if you really want to sign up and you have my phone number, I can send you the link. Um, our goal is to connect students with our adults um, in a one-on-one -on -one setting to facilitate growing our community relations and sharing life together. We do have a like end to the signups so that we can pair up like groups. Um, and that's gonna be next week, November 7th. Awesome, yeah. So the idea here is just for those college students who would like to spend some time once a month meeting with someone a little bit older than on their peer team or on the, the college staff that they get that opportunity to do that. And so we'll take some time to sign up uh, these next couple weeks and then start that in January or February of next year. And so it's just now again, another opportunity. We've not really done this formally in the past, uh, but any of you who are of adult age probably haven't just like graduated within like a year or two might be best. Uh, and would be interested in mentoring or being or mentoring college students or being mentored by someone out of college. Uh, again, it's not a huge time commitment, just once a month. And uh, I think that will be really helpful. So sign up, maybe Josh or someone more tech savvy can post that in the chat so that we have that uh, for you for you to do. Okay. Uh, other announcements? I think I feel like someone else had something. Maybe not. So yeah, in-person church next week, someone just, Melissa asked, is 11 o'clock, right, Leslie? Yeah, 11 o'clock next week. So now that we've moved the time back to 11, we're gonna stay at 11 to the end of the year so that we can uh, hopefully continue to meet outside. Yeah, good weather. All right, well, uh, hopefully you got a chance to look at Grant's post, uh, our worship meeting post this last week that tries to explain a little bit more what we're doing uh, in our um, kind of pursuit of thinking through worship. Uh, Aaron's going to lead us through 
something this morning and uh, that will continue to clarify what, what we're trying to do with that. Um, we really want to take advantage of, you know, being outside, not singing, to rethink how uh, we do worship. And that's why we have this team uh, that's separate from our song leader team that's just going back through and really thinking through this. So, uh, yeah, Aaron, I'm going to pass it over to you and let you lead us uh, this morning in worship. So like Brad said, our uh, worship team had decided to go ahead and try this worship prompt that we put together um, to try it as a group together today. So it's the same prompt that we've been posting with um, like three questions, and then you would select some sort of media or like a photo or artwork or scripture or song or something like that to respond to with those three questions. So today I've selected um, a passage of scripture and I'm going to put that on the screen and then there's the questions that go with it. So we'll give you about five minutes to just reflect on those. Um, yeah, to think through the three questions that are with it. You can journal, you can write down some thoughts, you can just kind of sit and think through your own response um, and worship to those questions. And then we'll break into um, groups of like three to five and just share your reflections, what you came up with based off of those questions. So I think it should be pretty straightforward. Um, the goal in this is to just lead us in worshiping God together, but also giving us an avenue or a platform in our own time to also, you know, utilize different things that we may come across in our day-to-day -day life to connect with God and hear from God and to worship God. Um, so yeah, so I'll go ahead and I'll share my screen and you'll see the scripture, you'll see the questions, and we'll just do that for about five minutes, like I said. And then I don't think I'm going to be the one, hopefully Josh or somebody is going to um, break us into groups. So, all right. Okay, uh, well, hopefully that gave you, if you've been a little confused up to this point, an opportunity to figure out what it exactly is we're doing. Obviously, this is challenging to do in front of people and uh, on the spot, but th this is the goal, is to try to kind of think through these three aspects. Not that you have to have all of them figured out, but that you've thought through those three aspects um, and are really trying to kind of figure out how to put God in his rightful place. Um, I did a couple people just have something they felt like they really wanted to uh, share with the entire group that they felt like someone said or, uh, or example they gave that was really, um, you know, kind of pertinent and would, would cause us or lead us all to, to worship God. Yeah. Um, I think something that was shared in our group, uh, which I think I thought was really good. This was actually from uh, Shayla, believe it or not, like she actually has good thoughts. Crazy. Um, but, um, no, I'm just kidding. I love Shayla. She's great No, but she had a really good thought though, about, um, how basically like we treat other people who are different than us. And she kind of brought up politics and political parties and basically the whole point of what Shayla was trying to say in our group was basically like, like we as a church treat people who are similar to us really great, but how do we treat those who are 
different than us? Do we treat them well? And even if we do that as a church, do people who think differently politically or socially or maybe have different values, do they feel do they feel welcome when they come to our church or is there even a place for them at this point? And how how diverse is our church? Uh, and that way, I guess, is another thought you could take from that. So, yeah, that I think that was really challenging because for me personally, I'm meeting up with someone today uh, who I kind of don't want to meet up with. And he's a lot different than I am. And so it's just like it's already difficult enough to meet up with people who are just significantly different and who think differently and who just act differently. And so to have that question posed individually for me it's challenging yeah i think one of the most important aspects of that is to remember that you know throughout the ages god has been portrayed in ways that um, he needed something from humans or the gods needed stuff from people rather than created them sort of out of his love uh, and care and concern and the idea that god doesn't need to be repaid uh, is a very challenging idea that God cares about all people, regardless of what they uh, have to offer, doesn't define very many of our relationships if we're honest about it. But that's who God is. He is uh, a creator of people who he didn't create so that he could have entertainment or so that he could have praise or uh, that he was incomplete without us. He created out of a love and, um, and a desire uh, for us to get to experience who he was. Anything else on that one? Okay, so uh, that really leads us into the topic we have today. I'm spending just a short amount of time on this. Uh, again, these, these topics have all come from you guys, so um, blame yourselves if they're terrible, not me. Uh, the topic today is critics are champions of the church. Um, how do we really uh, strike sort of a balance uh, between those two? Uh, and, and how do we even, uh, or how uh, ought we look at that? So I asked you to come up with some really good um, examples and analogies this week, and nobody gave me anything. So I'm going to force on you an, an introduction here that many of you will not relate to. I, will, I don't really relate to it myself. But if you follow Dak Prescott, the quarterback of the uh, Dallas Cowboys, and even if you have it and you have a few friends that are sort of sports um, enthusiast. Uh, Josh, this really is, you know, meant for you, Josh Robinson. He's a huge sports fan, uh, sports baller, as we call him. And, uh, you know, there's been this argument back and forth now for a couple, really about a year over his contract. And I know some of this just seems like it doesn't really matter. And, and you know, on the one side, people are like, he doesn't um, need to be making this, you know, 45 million a year contract that, uh, that he's requesting because he's not good enough. He's not the kind of quarterback that wins games. He's only been in four playoffs, blah, 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 blah. The other side says, look at him. You know, his stats are there. Uh, he's obviously a franchise quarterback in it for the long run. We see him as being really great. And if you look back through these arguments uh, on social media, which I'm sure all of you are going to jump on uh, because this is so compelling and interesting, uh, you see that, that really, honestly, you've got these people who are just simply don't connect. They're not, they're not really contributing to the conversation about Dak Prescott uh, and about what's going on. Of course, he's been injured now and out, and so this will add in a very uh, you know, kind of complex aspect to this all. But they're either critics of him and him making the salary, 
or just sort of blindly think uh, often that, you know, oh yeah, he's gonna be the right one. He's gonna be uh, the person for the job. So there you go. For all of you people out there who are listening to me and have always wanted me to be a real man and use a sports example and analogy, here I am today using a sports analogy. So I am indeed a real man. Well, we are like this with the church. We have these, I, I think, mentalities, attitudes, where, and I think probably more of us, because we're younger, tend to be more critics of the church than we are champions of the church. And I don't say any of these as being bad in themselves. They're both really important. Of course, the, the problem is when we become one or the other. Uh, we're only a critic of the church. We're only a champion of the church and don't have the ability, um, I think, to have a level head about the church, its role, its place in, in history, um, its importance in scripture. And so hopefully with a few things that, uh, that I say today, I hope you kind of navigate uh, what this ought to look like. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 3, uh, which I think is a very, very helpful passage for thinking about the church, not just in sort of like a high ideal type um, thing, but also like a really dealing with a specific issue uh, that the church at Corinth was, was having. So we're going to read the entire chapter, uh, which is not that long, uh, but uh, if you'll follow along, as we read that you guys get there. Um, yeah. So the church at Corinth is a tricky church. Uh, in some ways, it, uh, it very much, I think, resembles the church in the U.S. There's a lot of divisiveness. Uh, there's a lot of factions. Uh, there's almost every um, heresy in that church uh, itself uh, that you see in all of the other churches combined. Uh, it's a pretty wealthy, uh, famous sort of area. Um, and so anyway, yeah, and they have a lot of power. They have a lot of kind of clout from their business dealings uh, and even some, some pretty important religious history. And so, you know, Paul is trying to deal with this church that just has a lot of issues, a lot of problems. And so starting off, after he kind of intros his topic, talks, um, you know, more theoretically about how God uh, works through his spirit, uh, he goes right into uh, their role in the church. So we'll read this. Uh, it's a little bit longer, but uh, yeah, here we go. So brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. And this is helpful because if you, you kind of get a sense in 1 Corinthians that one of the major arguments is that certain people are trying to live in a spiritual way that is... Um, I don't know, kind of more impressive. Paul talks about the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And so some have gotten the impression that the spirit's main role among them is to sort of make them higher than the people around them, whether that's through tongues or through uh, miracles or uh, whatever it is, just a higher level of, of learning, then you know, that's kind of the spirit's role. And here from the outset, he's going to tell them, you guys aren't living by the spirit because you're not bearing the spirit's fruit. You're interpreting your worldly behavior and your worldly attitudes towards, you know, church and towards meeting with each other as actually spiritual things. Uh, and that's not so great. All right. So you're still worldly, merely infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. Since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? And this is really an important point here because his definition of immaturity in the church is their divisiveness. 
Not that they disagree, not that they come from different um, sort of tracks or paths of these different teachers and disciples, but, but that they're divisive, that they're actually dividing, um, having factions that are in opposition to the other, uh, and that is a sign that they're immature Christians and they're immature as a church. All right. So one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not just being human beings? That there's something natural in us that wants to follow different people, be in a different camp, define ourselves wholly by this group so as to um, ignore, you know, uh, the fact that the group is maybe not as good as we think it is, but particularly to, to integrate people who are in a different group, right? So he says, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each his task. They're just people, people who've taken what they've learned from Jesus, passed that on to you. And now instead of going directly to God, you're going to them, stopping at them as if their method, their mode was the most important in the whole, uh, whole deal. As I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is really anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, meaning not co-workers with God, but co-workers with each other, okay, in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now that might be confusing because he's just said he laid a foundation, but remember Paul as being the apostle laid the foundation that Christ entrusted him to lay. He passed that down directly to the church as Christ's foundation, right? So he's not saying that we can do that. He's saying that's already been laid. Uh, he says this in other places where adding anything to the gospel that I've shared from you, that's directly from Christ as my, you know, being the apostle uh, would be severely, um, you know, troubling. So, uh, for if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but, but will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Do you not know that you're, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? midst? Um, I would just say a quick point here, and that's that folks whoa, have often misinterpreted this, you are God's temple as an individual statement. Paul is not making an individual statement, at least in this place, as you are on your own a temple of God. Is literally in the context of saying you together as the church are the temple of God. And unfortunately, we've misread that to, to um, maybe we've compared it with other scriptures where Jesus says he come, he's come to live in our hearts. Uh, Paul's very much talking about we being the temple of God as the church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. That's pretty self-explanatory. Do not deceive yourself. If any of you thinks you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise and their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. 
So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, meaning Peter, or the world or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours, and you are all of Christ, and Christ is of God. All right. Um, so I want to suggest to you that I think rather than thinking in terms of being, um, you know, the church's biggest critic or the uh, church's biggest uh, champion, that there's probably a better way of, of looking at this, a way that comes directly from this scripture, and that's that as members of the church, we are cautious contributors, okay? We contribute being the most important thing there, constantly building, laying on a foundation. Our foundation will be shown up for what it is, but we're certainly cautious, not so much cautious of the church itself, which has become in vogue uh, in our sort of post-sociology, what I would say, mindset, where we mistrust anything organizational or movement-based and somehow always trust what's in our hearts, uh, as if somehow what's going on in us is good and what goes on when a whole bunch of good people get together is bad, makes any sense. Um, but we uh, need to be cautious contributors. Uh, we're contributing. And the important point there, again, is contributing. If you're not contributing to the church, what do you really uh, have to say about it? What, what do you really know about the church? Uh, capital C, lowercase c, whatever we're talking about there. Uh, that we ought to be cautious contributors. Um, I don't really want to be, at the end of the day, just a critic or just a champion, okay? Those are both things that I think are important and, and we can do, but if we side on one or the other, we miss the opportunity, uh, I think, to... Um, um, you know, to really be honest about, uh, you know, the church's role in our society, and more importantly, maybe our role in the church. All right, we're reading a book right now in cohort. Well, we will be. Well, actually, I think I said the book was too hard. So, um, well, we were originally assigned a book, okay? And it was written by an Australian theologian named Leslie Newbigin. And he basically writes in this book that, on, that we have this real problem when it comes to doubt and confidence and faith. And I'm not going to explain this too much, but I think it applies to uh, what we're talking about today in regard to the church. And that's that somehow in our uh, very objective mindset and even postmodernism in our, um, you know, uh, sort of disagreement or rejection of objective uh, truth, we kind of have decided that, you know, blind faith and honest doubt are good things or okay things. They're reasonable things. But he asked the question, uh, well, what about blind doubt when doubt isn't honest at all? Uh, or about honest faith when faith is honest to have? Um, and I think this is very much what, uh, what we're talking about today when we think about the church is do you have um, blind doubts about the church that are really unhelpful? Never really thought about them. It's, it's one thing to have honest doubts about the church, but what about your blind doubts about the church? Uh, things that you've grown up thinking, uh, things that you've uh, in, inherited uh, from other people's viewpoints that are just really not honest at all. They're blind. They're thoughtless. They're just doubts. You side on the side of being a critic because that seems to be in vogue or it seems to be what people around you are constantly saying or you, your impression of what they're saying. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't look like to have honest faith in the church. Uh, not blind faith, but honest faith, uh, a faith that uh, is honest about both the doubts and, and, um, 
and about the contributions uh, that the church has made. So I want to give you kind of two thoughts here. And the first one I think is going to be the most important one uh, for many of us. And then the second one, maybe not so much, but I think it will be helpful. And they're written in terms of questions, okay? So the first question is, do you trust that God is using the church to bring about his change on earth? Because that's what the church is for. Christ is being the head of the church. God is using the church to bring about change on earth. In the same way that he tried to use Israel to be a blessing to all the nations. And I don't want to make too many or draw too many comparisons from Israel to the church, although the scripture is chock full of them as the church being the new Israel and being the original, uh, the, the Israel that was originally intended. But do you trust that God is using the church to bring about change on this earth? Do you really trust that? Do you see it? Do you have an ability to um, uh, kind of, I don't know, draw on past amazing things in human history that the church has brought about? Things from education to democracy to human rights, uh, or is it more of its wrongs that you often can, you know, recite? <laughs> uh, do you really understand how the Christian church has brought about good things in our world, changes, important changes in our world? Or do you know more about the wrongs than you do what is contributed? Can you think about specific instances and things that are really, um, you know, credited to the church? Or have we in our enlightenment mindset, which, by the way, very much was birthed out of the church, <laughs> uh, gone back and sort of revised history to pretend like the church was always a terrible thing. The dark ages, the middle ages, all of those things that we tend to um, contribute uh, to the church doing uh, sort of wrong stuff. Now, not only that, but how do we navigate, and I think this is a really honest question, how do we navigate being honest about the wrongs and accepting the wrongs that the church actually has committed versus the wrongs that people in the name of Christ did, okay? Uh, people doing things wrong, incorrectly, things that there's no way you could interpret the church to have a role in. Um, I'm thinking like, you know, Hitler's Germany um, and the Lutheran church and the role that the Lutheran church played in that. You know, we have Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is one of the most important voices of the last three or 400 years, who chided the sort of mainline Lutheran church for how they went along with what Hitler did in Germany. But can we really say that that was the church doing those things? Or was it a group of people who were pretty much culturally Christian, accepting their culture's values and baptizing that in the name of the church? It's just a slippery slope. That's just an important one. So do you trust that God is using the church to bring about change on this earth? I didn't say Christianity. I said the church, Okay. And sometimes what's important in that distinction is that even in Israel, there was always a remnant of people that God could find that were ultimately the true church. And I'm not trying to say that the church can make no wrong, uh, can do any wrong. Of course, we make mistakes. But how many of those mistakes are honest and true mistakes? And how many of those mistakes are simply people using the church to get what they want? And we've got to see that and, and recognize it. Which leads us to the second thing. And this is more for those who have a tendency to think about the church uh, uh, in a kind of champion, we win, we're the best uh, type mindset. 
which again, I don't think appeals to implies to most of us here. Do you believe that God will work through the nations to bring about his purpose, even when the church chooses not to listen and be a part of it? The scripture says the rocks will cry out. <laughs> God can't find people in the church, just like he couldn't at times find people in Israel to do what he wanted them to do. He will use the rocks. Do you believe that God will work through the nations, meaning not the church, to bring about his purpose when the church chooses to ignore him and not listen to him? There's certainly been times when the church has not been listening. Okay. Now, again, this is tricky because probably one of the most important eras in American history is, um, you know, the issues of slavery and civil rights. The church was not listening. The Southern Baptist Convention split over this issue. Okay. But at the same time, it's impossible to look at MLK Jr. and, and not see him as a man of God, a pastor of churches, doing what he did because he was a man of God. It's impossible. He was not just some figure in our country who was mostly American and a little bit Christian. He was very much a man of faith doing what he needed to do and getting opposition from all sides of the church at the same time. And God purposely used other people, including, if I may say so, and probably will get a lot of flack if our older people are listening from the other churches, people like Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and people who had nothing to do with church to accomplish his purpose, despite the fact that the church was trying to impede that. And so do we believe that God will work through the nations when the church won't listen and won't follow him? That while just like Paul is saying here, we build on the foundation of Christ. Sometimes we don't build so great. And it's a hay structure that gets blown away one day uh, and back to the foundation the next day. So what is it that, uh, uh, you know, that we ultimately believe about those things? And can we challenge our sort of default modes here? We recognize God's nature and the culture while not assuming that everyone is committed to doing it for God himself, that God has the power to work through his people, to work through nations, organizations, even if they don't know he's working through them. <laughs> but God's going to do that and accomplish his purpose regardless of whether the church gets on board or not. But ultimately, the church uh, is the source for how God plans to change the world that we're in. So we're cautious contributors. Okay, we contribute to the church cautiously, not so much cautiously in the sense of the organization and structure, but in terms of our, ourselves first. Uh, are we really being the church uh, and our small group in our local church? Uh, let's start with the most basic level of analysis and then move out from there and stop making claims, whether they're champion claims or critical claims about the church uh, capital C before we've actually done due diligence and really thinking through, um, you know, what their culpability is, so to speak, you know, where they're responsible, where they're not responsible. So questions about that. I really wanted to do sort of a shorter one on this because I think we sort of have a sense of it. It's just more about, um, I don't know, kind of self-reflecting and uh, being sure that we are, kind of balanced in our understanding of the role of the church.
uh, something that we have to sort of self-reflect on, not just necessarily need more teaching on. But any questions uh, before we end off today? I have a question. So you said you literally asked, how do we navigate being honest about the wrongs and accepting the wrongs the church has done versus the wrongs people did in the name of the church? Yeah. So you asked, how do we recognize that? But I'm asking how you, how do we recognize that? Like, I don't, I feel like both, both sides would think that, you right. know, both sides think that about the other side, you know, think, pick a polarizing issue today, both sides within the church would say, well, you're doing this in the name of the church, but you're not really uh, trying to bring about God's purpose. Sure. And the other side would say the same. Like, how do you know? We yeah. both think we're right. I think in retrospect, it's always easier. Sure. Historically speaking, when we can look at the fruit of what's been done. I think in the moment, this is where disagreeing and divisiveness are different. When we have the ability to together disagree on something and talk about it, uh, that enables us to, in the moment, question, are we doing something intentionally apart uh, from, God, from God's plan for the church? Or are we maybe doing something out of our um, ignorance and lack of ability? Asher, get out of here. <laughs> Dogs, get out of here. It's because I'm sitting here. Come on. And they like me more than you. Okay. So disagreeing versus divisiveness i think is really important in the moment we have to be able to have conversations about what it is we're doing and people who are unwilling to have conversations i saw someone post the other day how could you possibly be a christian and uh, elect a pro-abortion candidate i'm just like what well, i don't what do you that i okay we're done like yeah. thanks <laughs> Um, no conversation, no discussion, no ability to disagree or even teach. It's just, don't even talk to me uh, if this is where you're at. And I think that's divisive mentality. It's, it's sort of setting down um, barriers to converse that, um, you know, that, that aren't easily set down uh, anywhere, uh, at least not from how Christ uh, dealt with things. Other questions before we finish off? I actually have one. Um, it was back on the, like, judging the church versus individuals who do something in the name of the church. Um, you said, like, how you recognize that is looking at the fruit of what's been done. What if nothing's been done yet, but, like, somebody wants to do something in the name of the church, and you don't know if it's how to, like, judge that, because, like, the fruit of what's been done isn't there yet. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does make sense. But I really want to encourage many of you who, and I'm certainly not picking you out at all. I think this is all of us on our uh, best day who've not done much research into the history of, of um, you know, the church's role in society. And so what we have is simply a, a very truncated, a very current understanding of the contributions of the church, which are not talked about much um, in any kind of educational sense. I mean, even in the pulpit, is are really not talked about the history of the church in specific um, historical and cultural ways. And that becomes really challenging for us to have a, a, an ability to understand that so many of the things that we are dealing with are just re repeated things 
that have already gone, gone on in societies for a long time. And we just don't sort of recognize the indications or the warnings uh, that have come our way. Even American history, uh, many of us have a tough time sort of looking through this. But I think your question is very similar to, um, at least I interpret it as very similar to uh, Chelsea's, my wife. It's ultimately, how do we tell in the moment? But that's the hard part is the hindsight's always much easier. We have to go back to in the current moment of trying to do what many of us have been committed to doing. And that's recognizing that Jesus is the only foundation, that how he treated people and how he interacted with people is the foundation of how we think about these things. And even in the passage that Aaron just read this morning, Jesus was not someone who started the conversation off with, you don't belong here. Um, it just, that's not how he did it. Um, and so there's so many things in Jesus's life that we can start with. Uh, that's our foundation. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I'm going to say something here that's very important too. Some of us have become a little bit obsessed with super pastors, you know, people who actually know how to speak, uh, unlike me, uh, who have really strange uh, and specific uh, Christian ideological viewpoints. And we love to listen to them because what we come away feeling really good or really confident or really, um, I don't know, feeling like we're a part of something bigger. Let's be very careful about those, uh, as Paul would say, super apostles. Yeah in a very, uh, you know, sarcastic way, because if those are the kinds of people we listen to and don't have much in the way of opposing viewpoints, we're in, uh, we're in a lot of trouble because what we're ultimately doing is just repeating the same mistakes that Paul is talking about uh, there. Any others? Yeah. Um, where, where do you think are some good places to start with understanding the history? Do you have any like recommendations where to read, things to start with? You know, I'm not a professor anymore, uh, so I can fully embrace Wikipedia. Uh, I am not even kidding. Just start with Wikipedia. Uh, you know, this is an excellent time even to go back and, and look through uh, in this current election, the Bull Moose Party and the and Republicans, uh, Democrats switching to Republicans and what role religion played in that switch. Um, because it's a really fascinating and interesting time frame. You've got the depression, you've got uh, political upheaval, you've got um, you know civil rights before it's really civil rights. Um, you've got just basic rights for blacks and browns in our society. This would be a great time frame to go back and just look because it parallels really well with what's going on in our society right now, uh, at least in terms of these elections. And, um, and that would just be a great thing. Just Wikipedia, just go Wikipedia, the election, um, you know, where Herbert Hoover lost to FDR and then FDR second term, just that 10 year period, go and look at it. Just spend some time trying to find uh, how the church was involved in these elections. Uh, that would be really helpful. And I think would be kind of interesting, fascinating um, to study and to think through. Maybe one more and then we'll be done. I have one. Um, I think I, I just kind of want to make sure I get my head around the ideas you're putting forward. I get what a, what blind faith is. I think I get what honest doubt is, but when you flip them and say honest faith and blind doubt, could you maybe give like a, maybe a specific examples that you've kind of worked through? 
Um, yeah, so I think blind doubt about the church ultimately comes down to um, any organization is just sort of a failed organization. I mean, I studied sociology, and so any organization is ultimately going to be, um, uh, I guess, less reliable and less trustworthy than the individual. Uh, that's really kind of an idea is that you have these social forces. And that would be a blind doubt thing for me. That is not true. The church is not presented like that in scripture. The church is uh, better than any of us can possibly ever be. Uh, as the spirit works in us to accomplish something so much greater than a family can accomplish, than a group of friends can accomplish, uh, that to me would be an example of, of blind doubt and really sort of going all in um, in regard to you know, what the church uh, does. We just don't have very many examples of that today, of groups sort of being better than, or at least we don't think about it that way. Uh, I should say, because it's not true that we don't have examples of it. Uh, I think on the honest faith deal, uh, for me, and it's very much related to this blind doubt thing, is that, you know, um, it's very easy to think of an organization as different people have different roles and skills, and we all want to just maximize our strengths uh, to make an effective organization. That is not how the scripture portrays community and family. It portrays it as the spirit will gift us as he's determined and desired. And we do not need to look at our strengths to build what we have here. We need to look at, uh, if anything, our weakness and, and the ability that God has to make something yeah. amazing out of the lack of amazing we are. Yeah. And as I looked at leaders over the years and how to choose leaders, um, you know, I have this kind of funny story. Uh, when I first went to Colin uh, back in 2005, I was uh, the campus minister there. It was our second organization. We were trying to roll that out. And I had like nine studies in one semester. And each one of these guys was like super, um, I don't know, you know, uh, they're talented. They were good looking. They were um, just the kind of guys that you would expect or you're going to build a ministry on. Uh, and every single one of them, except for one, uh, it, uh, left that study. And um, the only person that's still around today uh, was a guy that I studied with the next semester <laughs> who actually we did build that ministry on. Uh, and so to me, again, the idea was just that, um, you know, to build a successful and healthy organization, you've got to have the most successful, smart people in the most right and, you know, positions. And maybe that works for a business, but that's not how the, the church is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Those are just two examples that I think are related. All right, well, great uh, question time. If you have more questions, certainly I'm not the only one that can answer them. Uh, other people can, can answer those, think through them. Um, but I would encourage you just to, uh, if you're a critic of the church, uh, you need to start figuring out uh, what God has done, what amazing and, and miraculous things he's done uh, through the church that, uh, that you haven't even recognized or noticed. Because when you ultimately insult the church, you insult the foundation that he's laid. Uh, you need to be very careful about that. Um, you know, we're not going to change the earth, change the world, change ourselves or change anyone around us because you're good enough or because you found yeah. a group good enough. God is going to use the church to do that. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who are often blind champions of the church and everything the church does needs to be defended, I think you need to be a little bit more careful and cautious uh, about what you approve uh, of the church doing. Because remember, there's a lot of foundation built on top of Jesus that we ought not be defending. Uh, we got to get back to the basic foundation of who he is and what he's doing and uh, and show up all of that other work uh, for what it is, as the day will be revealed when it will be shown up, as Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3.
Let's say a prayer and then uh, we will be done. Lord, as a church, I pray that you uh, would continue to challenge us, um, to move us forward in your purpose, that each time we build on top of your foundation with junk, uh, that you would wipe it away, no matter how painful that is, um, that we would be willing for you to do that and to clean up, and that you would continue to um, put people in our midst that will build uh, with um, as talented as wise builders, uh, as builders that are really guided by you. I pray for uh, our uh, ability to see the church worldwide and in our own country, that we'd be honest about it, uh, as you're honest about it, that we would see it through your eyes, um, and uh, that you would just give us a sense of where you're working continually, uh, whether in the church or out, so that we can join you and follow you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.